Hello, and welcome to episode 16 of Daughters on Fire. I'm your host, Melissa Burton, and I'm very excited because today we're doing a two-part interview with James Vandiver. So he's going to be the first guy to come on our podcast, and Robin and I are very excited to bring him on board today as we talk about issues related to aging. James is an octogerian with many, many decades of amazing insight that he will share with us. Um, issues related to being a male caregiver and what that kind of holds for itself and issues related to the changing world that we are in. So I'm super excited that you get not only one episode, but two amazing episodes with James as we dive in today's episode with James Vandiver. Are you stressed, burned out, and looking for answers as you care for an aging parent? If you are, this podcast is for you. Here you will receive actionable advice from seasoned professionals, validation and compassion for the incredibly tough job you are doing, and most importantly, supportive love from a community of like-minded warriors. You're not alone. Join this powerful community as we support you on your complicated journey and help you transform into an empowered and calmer caregiver. Welcome back. This is Daughters on Fire, and I'm your host, Melissa Burton, and I am very excited today to have with us James Vandeveer as our um, interview for today. Um, James is a fantastic um, community resource guru, and I'm excited he's on our show today. He is an octogenarian, and he is retired with an atypical career of over 55 plus years, and it started in the faith-based ministry. He, um, after a long, I guess about 20 years in that, he went into healthcare and developed a corporate on the corporate level a senior living community. He has also worked at the national and state level with legislation. Um, and he then got back involved with a resource center for aging and, and just resources for um, the aging population, which we know a lot about because he's worked alongside Robin Arab in that as a friend and mentor to Robin, who, along with myself, think very, very highly of James. And we're so excited that you're here with us today, James. Um, please fill in the blanks and teach me again how to say your last name. I was worried about mispronouncing it, and I think I did. So welcome, James. Uh, you did very well. It's okay. Vandiver. Vandiver. Right. And I'm delighted to, uh, to share this time with you both because I am fascinated by the work that you guys are doing. Uh, I think it's... Uh, a, a much needed resource for caregivers and the way you're going about it, uh, I think is, is uh, cutting edge and I wish you well in that. Delighted to just share with you. Thank you very much. And James is getting us started today. We are in the month of June and we are dedicating June to honoring um, men in our lives for Father's Day. And of course, we're Father's Day is not at the beginning of the month, but we're just going to take the whole month to focus on um, issues related to to men. And so you're going to speak to us today in, with perspectives in several different areas. And I'd love it if you could kick us off and tell us a little bit more about your perspective, and not just, um, you know, the professional perspective related to, to males, but specifically what you've seen over the years as it 
transpired with caregiving and what you see, you mentioned cutting edge, what you see on the horizon for this world of managing aging and caregiving issues. Well, let me begin with my personal life story. First of all, I think men typically view themselves as uh, not needing care, providing care, but probably not being a good recipient of care when needed. Uh, I would say that I probably have maintained that uh, perspective in my own life, but I'm, I'm typical of the silent generation. I was born in 1936, and that particular cohort uh, is known for uh, being uh, positioned between the so-called greatest and then the overwhelming boomer generation. And yet the years of my uh, early life uh, are a reflection of life as it existed then. I grew up in the early years of my life uh, in a household under one roof with four generations. Mm. My great-grandmother, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, uh, my parents, and myself. This was not that unusual. Uh, You had the remnant of the war and uh, the depression that affected the economic status of many people. And so caregiving had a very broad definition. We took care of each other. And in those days, the way you did it was you lived together, you worked together, and you supplemented each other's incomes and or caregiving uh, needs and necessities. And so I typify that uh, in terms of the childhood that I remember. And then as I moved into my own adult years, I guess I became part of what uh, was began to be called the nuclear generation, i.e. mom, dad, and the kids. And yet, uh, even as a young married family, we were affected by the needs of our parents and grandparents. My father died when I was only 30 years old, leaving my mother and my grandmother, for whom my wife and I were primary caregivers. Uh, From that point in my life until about 15 years ago, there was never a time when we were not in some way involved in meeting the caregiver needs of our families. Uh, Two of our four parents spent some time in long-term care. And so we not only were caregivers in a home-based setting, but we also had the experience of relating to long-term care environment, dealing with all that goes uh, on in, in that world also. So I've seen caregiving in my personal life from a number of perspectives. And as I've said, particularly being the male uh, personality, I guess I felt a special responsibility to take care of things. Uh, did you find that it was, when you say take care of things, did you find that you felt it was more the, you know, kind of be the strong backbone, the financial provider, or with that many years of caregiving, did you find you, you also got pulled into the hands-on caregiving, kind of the uh, assistance with the very, baby and the dressing? Very little of the hands-on. 
uh, blessed in my situation with an incredible wife who is just a caregiver by nature. Uh, in fact, we kind of jokingly called her the grandmother to the world. Mm. Uh, but it's a, it's just a tremendous personality trait. And so that, um, that certainly colored the way we did things. A lot of responsibility financially. A uh, lot of responsibility in joint decision making. Uh, this is another interesting personal story. Uh, my wife, Faye, and I are both only children. And so when we would face caregiver responsibilities, we used to tease each other a bit and say, if we mess up, we have nobody to blame but but ourselves. Uh, we didn't have that sibling situation that uh, sometimes we laugh and call the brother from California. Uh, that's the person who doesn't really know what's going on uh, in the family. They fly in for a weekend, create total havoc, and then go back home. We didn't have that. But by the same token, we had no one else to lean on. The decisions we made, what we did, we were totally responsible for. So that's a unique uh, dimension also of our caregiving. Uh, in that regard, uh, not all of those years were what I would call direct day in, day out caregiving responsibility, but the overarching responsibility that this, that uh, that really affected many of our life decisions. It affected our geography. Uh, mm -hmm. In the early years of our marriage, we made some choices vocationally that placed us uh, in a more convenient uh, geographic position to reach out to our parents. Uh, that has changed a great deal uh, in our world today. Distance, uh, and caregiving, uh, we have different ways of dealing with it that we didn't have then, uh, but it's still the same challenge. Uh, even with technology, even with uh, uh, the more, I, I would say, formalized caregiving uh, resources that are available today, it's it's still uh, it's still important, and I think it affects a lot of the of the choices that families make. So you mentioned that, um, you know, making decisions about geography, were your families from Nashville and you stayed here or did they come here and you followed them? What, what did that look like? We were both native Nashvilleans uh, and our families were local. It affected, I would say, the proximity mm -hmm. from Nashville uh, that we would choose to live uh, in order to have um, convenient access. And what about um, when you started your own family? Do you have um, children that you all raised in this picture? Uh, that's a great question related to what we were talking about this morning. We have three children and five grandchildren, and they are scattered from Tacoma, Washington, to Longmont, Colorado, to Nashville, Tennessee. And so I think it's that the opposite is a, of what a great happens. insight. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and typical of today's world, just like some of our early married years were more typical of the world in which we lived uh, in those days. So you really have seen in your lifetime an evolution of the family and you've experienced it firsthand. Uh, that, that is correct. And, and, you know, caregiving is as old as the human race. 
a great deal of what we're discussing today uh, has some semantic differences, but caregiving is just taking care of one another, however you define it. And we were created to take care of each other. Uh, the age-old question, am I my brother's keeper, has been asked throughout history. It's still being asked today. What those needs might be and how we accommodate those needs may change a great deal. But basically, it's still the same. It's taking care of one another. So from your perspective, your professional perspective of being involved in um, ministry and then also with developing community, um, you know, like assisted living and senior communities, what are you finding is the main difference? Do you, has it gone from being caregiver support was more hands-on to caregiver support is more financial in nature? What has that looked like to you over time? I, I think over time, number one, it has become more formalized. Mm. Uh, in, in earlier days, uh, you were doing some of the same tasks, but they were not maybe so clearly defined. Uh, in today's world, we tend to uh, place those in categories. And those categories might, first of all, determine the person primarily responsible for doing it within a family. Uh, it seems that in family systems, usually one person uh, just becomes the go-to individual. Mm -hmm. uh, that presents some interesting observations uh, as I see in, in family systems, it profoundly affects the way we go about providing care. Uh, Robin and I have, uh, have commented that you can meet with a family, an extended family, and begin talking about the issues that they face in their particular family structure uh, in giving care. Uh, in about five minutes, you can pretty well do a genogram of that entire situation. Uh, and you can uh, also place uh, on the table any discussion that involves finances, and that's the moment of departure. Mm. Uh, you begin to see value systems unpacked. You begin to see the individuals who uh, get it who understand it, and those who, uh, who do not. And pretty soon your strategy has to develop uh, in that particular family situation, given those realities. And when you've seen one family system, you have seen one family system. <laughs> That's, I love that. That's what Robin says, and it's so true. She says it a little bit differently, but I can tell you two have spent time together because <laughs> um, that is definitely a common theme that it, you must have seen um, over and over and over again with those family dynamics. The, the other thing that I have noticed is that uh, it, it varies as we... Uh, watch the various cohorts in aging move through the life cycle. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we've done a great job in looking back and identifying the strengths and weaknesses of Brokaw's greatest generation. Mm 
Mm. Uh, we have lived through the impact of the, of the boomer crest. Now the boomer is no longer the largest aging cohort. Mm. And, and there are a, a number of cohort theories, and I'm fascinated by all of this, know very little about it, and I'm not sure that we have become that knowledgeable about it uh, in any way. But cohorts vary. Uh, the, the boomers are so different from uh, the millennials. Uh, those born after the year 2000 seem to be more like some of the former cohort age groups. And so you see the pendulum swing back and forth. And the, the whole aging process, I think, has impacted this. Uh, we've been saying for the first time in American history, we have had, if you want to call these generations, five generations living at the same time with a significant percentage uh, of the U.S. population represented. Uh, I've seen in the last year uh, the greatest generation, which was 1% of the population, dropped to 0.5% in just one year. I think that tells us something about the reality of, uh, of the mortality issue, even with its longevity in today's world. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that while our mortality has increased a great deal in the last 20 years, morbidity has changed very little. We so they are live, living sicker. They are living sicker longer. Yeah. And that, that has certainly redefined those who might need caregiving. In fact, Robin has probably said this. Uh, I love the quote uh, from Rosalind Carter, who says that there are only four kinds of people in the world. Those who have uh, been a caregivers, those who are, those who will be, and those who will need care. Mm -hmm. and that uh, at one time or another, we are in one of those categories, maybe more than one at one time. Uh, and so I, I think that is, uh, uh, that's, that's, that's significant. Absolutely. I, I also like the term that we are temporarily able instead of the disabled, we are temporarily able people, you know, at some point in time, like you said, um, we, we will lose our independence and need support. One of the things that I focus a lot on in my um, counseling world with this, these issues, aging issues is what I've kind of coined as generational healing and it's allowing the person that I am with one-on-one -on -one to put themselves in the shoes of the person that they're caring for and understand that perspective that they're going through. So I love what you're saying about the cohorts and how each cohort has a different experience. And if we really understand each individual experience and we can place ourselves in that experience, then we have a, a better place to come from compassion and understanding and non-judgmental curiosity about what we can do for them in the caregiving role. For example, um, I often have like daughters who have, you know, they've had tension with their mom on and off, you know, through those turbulent teenager years to power struggle dynamics. And, and now they're caregiving. Well, they feel like mom is um, maybe, you know, just picking on me or, or they're taking everything that mom's going through as, as personal, but may, mom may have dementia or mom may be losing her independence. They're not putting themselves in the perspective of what's going on for mom that doesn't have anything to do with me. 
And it, like in the case of dementia or vulnerability, they go back to that place of vulnerability that they remember as a child, which means they need to consider issues like what was it like for your mom when she was a child and she was feeling vulnerable what was her relationship like with her mom because if you're becoming that parental role in her life you need to know what that was like for her when she was a child um, because it, that's going to be coming back up for her you know you, so this whole perspective of stepping outside and looking at the cohorts the different generational experiences how much has changed where we're coming from can be so um, empowering for caregivers because they stop personalizing it and they they can then just tackle the issue for the need of that loved one what do they really need you know, they may need me to love them even more because as a child, maybe they had their own issues that they had to deal with. And it's been, that's why I call it generational healing because it's, it's so much more layered than just the relationship of the two people in the room. Well, I, I love, I, I love your, the, the way you're defining that. And just a, a word uh, to those who might be listening to this in the future, listen to what you've just heard. Uh, it, uh, it's something you need to remember. Uh, we are learning more and more about this transition from, from child to parent to child. Um, there's the phrase, when did I become my parent's parent? Mm -hmm. uh, and or the reversal of roles in all of that. And I, I think that layered with what you're saying is, is really important. There's a great book uh, called Parent Care Solution written by a, a gentleman over in the Carolinas who was a financial planner and an attorney. Uh, he tells the story of the onset of his father's dementia. His father uh, was a strong, um, self-reliant, former Navy man. Mm. And uh, he tells about the, the phone call that he received. Uh, and uh, his father had been picked up by the local police department in his home community uh, in the middle of the night, driving and lost. And they called his son to just give him that report. And again, now, th this to the point of, of, of of, of our discussion today, this is a male mm -hmm. uh, dealing with this particular situation. And so what he had done as a financial planner and as a, an attorney in dealing with clients for years now became personal. Mm -hmm. uh, it, is, it is now his life, his father. And he tells about all the decisions that they had to go through. And there were two things that struck me as I read that book. First of all, he said, uh, he asked as they were preparing to move his dad into long-term care, what are some of the things that you want to take with you? And he said, I want to take my Navy SEALs cap. And although he had been in the Navy, he certainly was not a Navy SEAL. But he said, why do you want to take that cap? And he said, because they leave no one behind. And that's a great statement growing out of what we see all the time in a demented individual who has some reality that just is there. Mm -hmm. The second mm -hmm. thing is, he said, I will never forget that on the Palm Sunday of that particular year, 
I became my parents' parent. Uh, I just think that's the way it looked. That's the way the real life of caregiving looks. Right, right, absolutely. And it's, I see children feel like all the time, I'm the expert of my parents. I'm the one that knows them the best. Um, when the switch happens, I've got to be, it's almost like they have to fake it till they make it. But, and that's exactly what they're doing because they've never parented their parents. And there's no, I, I, I think there's a lot of grace in it, but we fear revealing that Achilles heel of like not really knowing what we're doing, you know, when we Absolutely. take the help. And I think and from the parent too, the parent doesn't know how to let go of the reins. So well, that's true. It's, it, can be, it can be a very tumultuous time. And I know you've probably seen that so much um, over the years. I've, I've found, like, personally, because I'm more in the active, my, my parents are fairly independent, but things are changing kind of slowly. But surely, in one of the tough conversations that we had, um, it, it kind of went like this. Uh, we want our parents to move because, my, me and my sisters, because they live in a two-story house with uh, – stairs everywhere and the main you know the bathroom bedroom master bath are all upstairs and we just see that as you know a crisis happens or you know you gotta you can't stay there and so let's be proactive they don't especially my mom being younger um doesn't want to be forced out of her home right and and she'll know when the time is right and so there was this kind of back and forth and back and forth about it's no, now's the time, be proactive. And um, no, th this power struggle almost, that's exactly what it was, was a power struggle until we had a conversation where I'm like, I don't want to tell you how to live your life. I don't want to force you to give the reins over to me. I'm not trying to do the switch where I'm the parent. Obviously, they're very independent. I said, but the decisions that you make, I'm going to be there to pick up the pieces. I'm going to be there, and my sisters as well, in the crisis to pick up the pieces. So your decisions do impact my life. So can we at least collaborate? And when we started using the term collaborate, it was so much different than this power struggle. It became we're all on each other's team and that we all want to win. We all want the best. And I was able to ease up and realize that, um, you know, the, it's not my life at that stage that um, it's their life to live. So I need to respect that. And then they were able to hear and validate that their choices do impact me. And so I feel like right now we're in a really good place as a family because we are in kind of this collaboration mindset instead of the switch. I know someday just like you said, um, that gentleman who wrote that book, it will be a switch, and that will be. Uh, I will. I, I've heard um, Robin and others mention this: that feeling of um, when your parents are gone and you feel like an orphan. Um, the feeling that they're gone and, and you're the parent and they're no longer in that role. I, I dread that day. I know that's a really hard day. For now, I'm on a team with my parents and my family, and I. And I encourage people to really look at it that way because it's, it's, it's been so much more peaceful and pleasant <laughs> than the power struggle. Well, and, 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 and that segues into something that, that I really feel is vital. 
those kinds of discussions will surface what their their desires, their wishes are. And that leads to the whole matter of documenting wishes. Mm. And in caregiver roles, when we have had those conversations and then have moved on to document those wishes, it places us in a much better position to give care. And in today's world, uh, there are ethical and moral and legal responsibilities that are unpacked in that situation. Without some of that documentation, life gets dramatically troubled uh, if you face decisions without that kind of documentation and you move down to uh, what medical science recommends, which, and, and by the way, science is amoral. Science will do anything it can do. Technology will do anything it is equipped to accomplish. That's why it's important to overlay technology with personal values. Because what might be right for you and your family might not be for me. And one size does not fit all. And great caregiving meets those needs. And so in in caregiving, document, documenting wishes, growing out of great discussions uh, can change the whole playing field. And using a bit of an athletic uh, parlance, I, I like to say life's better if we're all playing on the same side of the net. Absolutely. I love that. It sounds like you're really saying that communication is key and, and Absolutely. Putting, putting it all out there. And the other thing that I do see that is very troublesome, uh, and that is the tendency to warehouse older people. Mm. Uh, and they are still persons. Uh, and if they still have decision-making capacity, they ethically not only should be, but must be included in decision-making. And I see this particularly as the decision to move into long-term care uh, is being made. Quite often what mom or dad wants or needs or uh, preferences that they might have are completely overlooked. it doesn't change the fact that it might be unsafe and or unwise for them to live alone or to uh, be able to provide for their own activities of daily living. Doesn't change that at all. But the way we go about making those decisions will last a long time in that relationship, either continuing, improving, or totally deteriorating. Uh, and, and quite often I see decisions being made in which the parent is not at all involved. And I think this uh, quite often uh, you, you see in the, uh, in the leadership in long-term care situations. If you're, not careful, if you're not careful, it becomes no more than a marketing decision. Uh, it's a census issue. It's heads on beds. And mm-hmm. we lose sight of the individual and their needs Uh, without taking into consideration not only what is best for that person, but how they would like to see that accomplished in their own lives. 
That's a very interesting perspective. And um, I have a question for you. So I have actually seen um, a lot specifically, actually, no, I think it is men and women where they are not actually, I would say maybe in maybe the 60 to 80 or 60 plus range now. Um, I'm tr- Maybe, I don't know about boomers. Boomers may be able to express their wishes a little bit better. But I digress. This demographic of individuals, maybe your cohort, that don't express what they really need. And you can tell that they're not happy with decisions, but they're more about, I just want to make my children happy. Whatever they want is fine. And they don't speak up for themselves as much as they could to really live a more quality life. Um, you know, for safety reasons and such, yes, maybe you don't need to stay at home, but instead of going halfway across the country, you know, if if you wanted to stay where you were, they're just like, well, wherever my children want me to go, they're not vocalizing their needs as much as they could. Do you see that? And do you see that as um, kind of something impairing them getting that good quality of life? That's a great point. I do think there is a a cohort implication in what you're saying. For example, my silent generation uh, was more compliant uh, than the boomer. Uh, Bye. It's it's easy to stereotype all of us. Uh, Those who know me will tell you that I'm not very silent when it comes to things like that. (laughs) Um, That's probably not a great quality. But uh, we, although we are different, you're right in terms of the way we communicate based on what some of our life experiences are and based on the peer relationships that we have in a given age cohort and how that has changed through the years. Uh, I think those are real and uh, we can learn a great deal from them. Uh, The thing that, that does happen when we have that, uh, that issue, it raises the value of someone like you and what you do. Uh, quite often those kinds of conversations um, need to be, um, uh, well, how best to say this, they need to be negotiated. Uh, I, I, I think a lot of us need a little outside help when it comes to that kind. It needs to be a guided conversation. And uh, so, again, for families that might be listening to this, uh, seek that help. Uh, it might be uh, Daughters on Fire, where they find that help. Uh, it might be their physician, or it might be someone that they're working with uh, in terms of making a placement decision. It might be a good realtor who specializes in downsizing and helping families make the right housing choices. But get the help that you need, um, not not many of us can do that in a self-guided way and be uh, extremely successful. I, I really appreciate that. And I think you're right that those um, professionals out there, we are the advocates for the silent generation or for those who can't speak for themselves. So really by, by 
reminding people to look at things and to look at different perspectives is is our role it's what we need to do to improve the lives of, of everyone from the caregiver to the individual who is aging and dealing with frailty and end-of-life issues and and on that point I, I think it's interesting that as we speak it's the year 2020 and those born uh, at the at the beginning of, of this decade are turning 20 this year. Wow. So we no longer talk about the number of generations that we have been living with all of a sudden, assuming that some percentage, regardless how small, but some percentage of the population still represent uh, that, uh, that depression, World War II age, the greatest generation. Now you add whatever we're going to name this new group who are now turning 20, they will become their own cohort in the way we, we uh, develop the cohort theories. And so there will be even more of us representing even a greater uh, diversity in what you've just described. Wow. And that will impact not only the way we think, but the need to understand how others think. And that will be so important in the decision-making process of caregiving. Absolutely. And then there's the, just the issues um, with caregiving about the, the level of caregivers, professional caregivers, and support from um, the community. Those numbers are going down with the baby boomers and the frailty of the baby boomers going up. You know, there's going to be, that's going to change. That's going to change how we deal with our aging. I think that's going to put a push towards technology where that wasn't available before. And it's going to, I mean, we're seeing history play out. I mean, I know we're seeing history play out right now in this moment because of coronavirus, how we respond to things will be drastically different, um, drastically different, just like with the depression and such. It changed that cohort forever. It changed everything forever. So it's, we're right in the middle of history. And I'm such a, um, I love the study of human behavior. I wish I could step back a hundred years from now, you know, or step forward a hundred years from now and see um, what this all leads to, but we're living it. So we just have to take it day by day. Uh, and, and some, some ways in which I think we will observe what you've just described. Uh, I agree, will be impacted uh, by the virus crisis. Uh, some of it will be new. Some of it will be just an expansion of what we're already experiencing. Uh, number one, uh, technology will be huge. Uh, number two, the way in which we deliver care, I believe, will become more and more commercial. There will be more companies that will be non-medical providers or home health will be expanded uh, to be able to provide a higher level of acuity uh, services within a home environment uh, because we will use acute care hospital settings for more and more gravely ill people. Uh, the development of palliative care, 
uh, and the, the, the way we choose to end life uh, will be, I think, more well-defined. Uh, I think the way in which uh, we um, accept uh, our frailty will always be a challenge, uh, particularly with the mortality increase in the way we live. You, you mentioned it in the case of your own parents. Uh, when they speak of aging, they're speaking of anyone else in the world besides themselves. Exactly, exactly. And uh, I can relate to that uh, because, you know, more and more I see in my own life uh, some of those changes beginning to occur. And the, the, the tendency is to deny. All right, we are going to leave it right there with this cliffhanger of episode 16 of Daughters on Fire. And one of the reasons why we did not want to do a super long episode in one bite was because we know your time is valuable here at Daughters on Fire. Caregiving is so complicated and you don't have time for a marathon session of a podcast. And James's insight is just so profound and he has so much great things to say that we wanted to break it up for you. So don't worry, we're going to come back probably tomorrow and drop the second part of this episode of this two-part interview so that you can have access to this right away kind of like binging your favorite episodes we won't make you wait on this one but we did want to make sure that it was kind of broken up in a way that makes sense in caregivers lives let's admit it we only have so much time let's pack that full of great information in bite-sized pieces so we will um, come back with James and he is going to give us a lot more great information about caregiving, about purpose, about end of life. And we will be so excited to have you join us back here for episode 17. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and ask that you subscribe to this podcast. If you find this podcast helpful, please leave a review so we can reach more women like you. You are not alone on your journey and the Fire Tribe is here to support you. Check us out at DaughtersOnFire.com and our Facebook group for more support and resources. Until next time, remember, you are the fire that fuels the engine of life.